So what is love? Well, there's an old story that kind of illustrates it, and uh, kind of illustrates it. It's, it's about a couple who goes into, an elderly couple who go into a Burger, a burger King or a McDonald's. And they um, get one burger, one fry, one Coke, and they ask for an extra cup. So they sit down, and the husband proceeds to cut the burger in half, takes the fries, pours them out, divides them in half, takes the Coke, pours half of it into the empty cup. Well, there's a guy sitting in the table right next to him, and he's seeing what's happening. And uh, he feels bad for them. He thinks, maybe they're destitute. They can't afford more than one meal. So he looks over, and he says, uh, would you allow me, please, to buy you another meal? And the husband shakes his head and smiles. And he says, oh, no, no. We've been married for 50 years, and we share everything. Oh, okay. So he goes back to eating. But he's watching, and only the husband is eating. And the wife has not said a word. She's just sitting there watching him eat. So he gets worried again, and he looks over to the wife, thinking she might have a different story. And, and he says to her, um, ma'am, are you okay? Why aren't you eating? And she says, it's his turn to use the teeth. I don't think it's a true story. <laughs> and I hope it's not. <laughs> but it does capture a little bit about what we're talking about today, uh, specifically about love. But I, I, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share teeth uh, should you have ones that you can take in and out. Um, we need to know what love is. And we need to know it because there's confusion always in our culture. There's always confusion in all times about what love is, what society says love is, and what the Bible says love is, are oftentimes um, maybe a little bit of overlap, but sometimes even at odds. And our passage today is a very famous line from the Bible that you've heard before. Almost everybody, if not everybody, has heard this line before, and it happens twice, and it's the line, God is love. God is love. And there's also this line that happens, I think a couple of times, this is love. And then there's another time that it says, this is how we know what love is. Unfortunately, it tells us what this is that is love. And it tells us how we can know what love is. Now, uh, this passage is different than a lot of other passages in the Bible. Uh, the whole book of 1 John is very different. I, as I was preparing to preach from it, I actually told some people, oh, I don't like 1 John. And which sounds terrible for a pastor to say. But there's a reason why I don't particularly like relish reading it, even though the content is incredible. And uh, hopefully it'll be explained by a Bible project video that we're about to watch. And uh, it's really important, uh, notice in the Bible project video, notice what the situation is and what the style of writing is of 1 John, all right? So those are the two things to really notice in this video. We're going to watch the Bible Project video. Let's see it. First, second, and third John. First John is actually anonymous, but second and third John are written by someone who's called the elder. Now, the language and style of all three of these works are identical to each other and to John's gospel. And so most people think that all of them come from the disciple that Jesus loved. 
Now, that could be John, the son of Zebedee, one of the 12 apostles, or it could be another John among Jesus's earliest disciples known as John the Elder. Whichever John it was, he's now in his old age and he's overseeing a network of house church communities that are likely around the city of ancient Ephesus. Now, from clues within the gospel and from these letters, it seems that these communities were made up mostly of Jewish followers of Jesus and that they had recently gone through a crisis that motivated John to write these letters. He mentions that a group of people have broken off from these churches. These people no longer acknowledge Jesus as Israel's Messiah or as the Son of God, and they're stirring up hostility among those who stayed faithful to the churches. In fact, 2nd and 3rd John clearly address this conflict. 2nd John is a warning to a specific house church. There are people who deny Jesus. John calls them deceivers. And they're probably going to come looking for validation or support. And this church community is not to offer any. 3rd John is actually written to a member of one of these house churches, a man named Gaius. And the elder asks him to welcome legitimate missionaries who are going to arrive soon. He has to tell him to do this because the leader of that church community, Diotrephes, is acting like a jerk and he's rejecting anybody associated with John the Elder. And so these letters give us a window into the tension and conflict that John faced in these churches. And first John was written as a response to all of this as a form of damage control. The elder assures those who still believe in the Messiah, Jesus, that God is with them as they adhere to the truth. And so all of this helps us understand the uniqueness of 1 John, which is actually not a letter at all. It reads more like a poetic sermon sent to these churches. John says that he's not communicating new information. In fact, almost all of the key ideas and words in 1 John come right out of Jesus' teachings in the Gospel of John. And so John's goal is to remind them and persuade these Christians to stay true to what they already say they believe. The poetic quality of John's sermon is really cool. He doesn't develop his ideas in a linear or logical way. Rather, he uses a well-known technique of ancient rhetoric called amplification. So John has just a few core ideas he wants to communicate about life and truth and love. And he's going to cycle around these ideas repeatedly, each time offering a little bit different of an angle or emphasis. He uses a lot of hyperbole. He uses very stark contrasts with simple images of light and dark and love and hate and good and evil. But don't let the simplicity of 1 John fool you. This work is deeply profound. There's a clear introduction to 1 John and then a clear conclusion. And the flowing cycles of the sermon in between these two don't follow any kind of rigid literary design. But there do seem to be two larger sections. Each one is marked off by the introductory phrase, this is the message. And then each is followed by a repetition of images about how God is first light and then how God is love. And all of the ideas in these two parts flow out of and cycle back into these two core ideas. So the introduction is very similar to the prologue of the Gospel of John. It has echoes of Genesis chapter 1 and Proverbs chapter 8. John speaks of the word of life that was with God in the beginning. For John, the word God refers to both the Father and the Son who came to bring life into the world. And so those who saw and heard and touched the Son are called we. John's referring to himself and the apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. And so now we have a message for you, the next generation of Jesus' followers. So when the apostles share the word of life with others, 
These others are also brought into fellowship with the Father and the Son through the apostles. The word fellowship here is koinonia in Greek. It means a participation or sharing. When people hear the message about Jesus through the apostles, that message brings them into a real relationship with Jesus himself and into a real participation in God's own love and life. And so this flows right into the first main section. This is the message. God is light. This is the message of the apostles that the God revealed in Jesus is light. And so if people want to participate in God's own life through Jesus, they need to keep walking in the light, which is a really cool image, but what does it mean? It means for John to keep Jesus's commands. And that's hard. So when you fail, Jesus's atoning death will cover for your sins. And then once again, you're called to get up and obey Jesus's teachings. But which one of his teachings? John reminds the churches of Jesus's old slash new command given to the disciples at the Last Supper, that they love one another as he loved them. Doing this is walking in the light. Now, if God's light is now shining through Jesus, then that means the world's darkness is passing away, which also means that God's children already in this moment have victory over the sin and evil and death that reigns in the world. And so that leads John to challenge the churches, don't love the world because it's passing away too. He's referring here specifically to pride and sexual corruption. Likely, these are problems connected to the conflict that was happening in the churches. And so this leads John to warn the churches about these people who have left the communities and who deny Jesus as the Messiah. John calls them the anti-Messiahs and deceivers, but he's confident that those who still know the truth about Jesus are in fact the true children of God and they are loved by the Father. And they show that they're part of God's family when they do righteousness and when they love one another, unlike the deceivers who are generating anger and strife and division. And so this transitions into the second main section of the sermon. This is the message of the apostles, John says, that God is love. And so God's children should love one another and avoid hatred. Don't be like Cain from Genesis chapter 4, John says. His hatred led him to murder his brother. But for Christians, love is defined by giving up one's life as a sacrifice for the well-being of others. That's what Jesus did. And when God's children trust in that love for them, it changes them. And so John warns once again of the deceivers. This time he calls them false prophets. When they deny Jesus is the Messiah, they apparently claim to speak for God. But John says to test the spirits. If anyone claims to speak on God's behalf, but doesn't focus on Jesus as the crucified son of God, they do not speak for God, John says. God's true children will center their whole lives on the crucified and risen Jesus, because that's where we see God's true heart revealed. We see on the cross that God is a being of total self-giving love. And that love is what compels Jesus' followers to love others in the same way. And when people meet this God of love, it does away with fear and angst forever. Which is part of what John means by having victory over the world. When you realize that God so loves you, that he is crazy about you despite your deepest flaws and failures, that love becomes the thing that grounds your entire life. This love is what comes through trusting in the crucified Jesus. It comes through trusting God's testimony about Jesus given by the Spirit, and it's trusting in the message from the apostles about Jesus. 
And when God's love gets a hold of you, it opens up eternal life. It's a life permeated with God's own presence and life and love, and it begins now carrying on into eternity. And so this leads John to the climactic conclusion of his sermon. He says, We know the Son of God has come, and so we can know the one who is true. And we are in the one who is true, in his Son, Jesus the Messiah. This is the true God and eternal life. Now, if your head's kind of spinning after hearing that sentence, and you're wondering, wait, who is the one who is true? Who is the one who gives true life? Is it Jesus or is it God? And John's answer is, of course, yes. John doesn't know any God apart from Jesus. And when he and the other apostles encountered Jesus, they discovered the God who loves us so deeply that he has chosen not to exist without us despite our failures. And this God is so surprising, so unexpected, that John's final words call us to keep away from idols. That is, to resist any temptation to remake the surprising God in our own image. To know Jesus is to know the God of creative, life-giving, others-centered love. This, John says, is the one true God. And that's what the letters of John are all about. All right. Somebody went, shoo. It's a lot of information. Um, you can always go back. Uh, it's uh, pre, uh, the, the Bible Project, not to be confused with the Gospel Project, which is the curriculum that we, we use with our kids. So it's called the Bible Project. Every book of the Bible, they do that with. And major themes, they use animations to explain them. So I highly, highly rec recommend them. Um, but one of the things that comes through really clearly, and you're going to see it as we, we read, there's a certain style of writing. This is why First uh, John, there's two aspects of it that have always kind of gotten under my skin. One of them is it's not a logical type of thing. It's, it's circling back around and around and around again. As I read the passage, it's going to sound repetitive, like he already said that, but he didn't saying the same thing, but in a little bit of a different way. There's a nuance. There's a different way of, uh, of emphasis on it. You're going to see this over and over again. As we go through the sermon, the same kind of thing. As I show you the passages that support the traits that we're looking at, it's going to sound like, didn't he just say that? No. If you stop, which we don't have time to just stop, but if you stop and you, you spend some time meditating on it, you see each time that something new is brought out. The other thing about 1 John is that it is, uh, he said hyperbole, which is exaggeration. And so it's a, it's a and he said it's a well-known form of rhetoric, of, of communicating. And so while the book of 1 John is really, really clear that we sin, and if we say we don't sin, we're liars, and that we have forgiveness in Christ. There are other times that it says, listen, if you sin, you're the son of the devil. <laughs> because it, it uses contrast to try to make a point. And uh, I could go on a little bit more in explaining that, but it can be jarring at times as you're reading. The other thing that's really good, and one of the reasons I wanted you to see this, is to remember that almost every book of the Bible is an occasional document. That means it is written to a particular occasion. Something was happening, and it's written to that. So the first five books of the Bible are based mostly on a revelation given to, to Moses to retell the story, to remind the people of Israel what their story is. That's what it's about while they're in the wilderness. That's the occasion. If you lose sight of the occasion, you lose sight of what is trying to be accomplished in the first five books of the Bible. 
The, the Gospel of John tells us at the end why he wrote it. Luke, his Gospel, he tells us at the beginning why he wrote it. And then letters like this, as you, as you read through them, there's clues as to what's happening. And all those things that he said about people who came and left, they're all in there. If you'll be looking for them, understanding these are not essays written for a seminary class. It's not a professor writing a book. It's a real document being passed on to a church. And that's true of everything that we have uh, in the Bible. So follow along as, as I read. We're not going to read. Uh, we're going to skip because he goes off on these other tangents that bring back some things that he talked about earlier or that he's going to be talking about later. So uh, follow along beginning in verse 11. For this is the message. There's that this is the message that marks a new section or a second half. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know that what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear brothers, dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Okay, pick up in chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love has made us, is made complete in us. One last section, verse 16, but halfway through where it starts a new paragraph. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. All right. Three traits. There are more in there, but we're going to look at three traits of love that reveal a healthy faith. And the very first one is, is that it is an overflow love. An overflow love. John Piper uh, defines love or uh, gives a short definition of love in his book, Desiring God. He says, love is the overflow 
of joy in God that, God that gladly meets the need of others. It's an overflow. And that's, that's the, the word that I think captures a lot of what John is talking about here. The kind of love that comes from us is something that overflows in us. It's not something that we generate. It's not like John is saying, just love more. What he's saying is, is let be so, so filled with God that what overflows in your life, what is produced in your life is love. It's like, it's like God is being poured into our lives and then overflowing from what's pouring is, is his love. It overflows to the people around us. Where do we see it in this passage? Well, there's all kinds of places and they all kind of combine together to create a really, really strong image that can be looked at from all different angles. But look at verse 16 again, chapter 4. Verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So it's the idea of God being poured into them. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love is in us. Okay? His, he's poured into us, so his love is in us, and his love is made complete in us. Then there's a related idea in verse 7. We also see it in chapter 3, but a related idea, verse 7 of chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. It's not, again, self-generated. Everyone who loves has been born of God. And knows God. There's a, there's a spiritual birth that happens. It's like we're, we're living, the, the love that we live, it's because we're in a new family and it's a family trait. God, God our Father, has poured himself into us. We are now his children and a family trait is going to be love that's going to be shown. So what is overflow love? How does it happen? What's our role in it? I'm going to give you three pretty packed statements that if you say, take some time going through the reflection questions, you'll be able to unpack it for your own life. And in your small groups, you'll have a chance to do that. But here are three statements that talk about this overflow love, if you combine some of this. God's love overflows from us through spiritual birth. That comes when we put our faith in what God has done for us in Christ. So God doesn't pour himself. Being a child of God is not a designation in the Bible that's ever used of humanity in general. It's not like all, we're all children of God in the world. There is a sense in which we are, but in the sense that it's spoken of in this passage and throughout the New Testament when Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3, he's talking about a new birth that has to happen. There is a spiritual transformation that has to happen, a new standing with God. And so what happens is it, 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 there, there has to be that birth. If God's going to pour himself into us and out of us is going to come love, it's because we have a new spiritual birth in our lives. The transformation is beginning to happen. Here's a second statement. God's love overflows from us as his presence with us and in us grows. So we have to... We have to grow in that sense of connecting with him. So it's as we walk with God, as we relate to him. And how do we do that? Well, some of the basic ways are through prayer, through reflecting on his word. Because when, as we reflect on God's word, he's speaking to us. The Holy Spirit illuminates it for us. And worshiping him, we're connecting with him when we're worshiping with him. Here's the third statement about overflow. God's love overflows is we grow in greater knowledge. So knowledge is important. Knowledge of him through the study of God's word. So it means we have to engage our minds. We have to engage our hearts. If we're not studying God, if we're not learning about God, learning more about him and a knowledge of him, we don't know what love looks like. 
and we're, we're not being shaped by this, this glorious God that we worship. All right, so overflow love. That's the first trait. The second trait is that it is a costly love. Uh, so the model of love, God is not only God is love, but then he also models for us what love is. And we see how Christ loved us, and we see it was a costly love. It costs Christ, it costs God dearly in, because of his love for us. And the passage makes this point explicitly in a couple of places. It's so still in chapter 4. Look at verse 8. It says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Costly. He didn't come to, when the statement is made like this, it's driving home what's always in the idea of Jesus sacrificing himself. There's a general idea out there kind of that Jesus just came to this world and he loved so much that he got killed for it and he sacrificed himself. That's not what the Bible means. The Bible says that Jesus came to be a sacrifice as a sacrifice in the temple that is an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And it was Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, becomes the Lamb, the sacrifice that atones for our sins. He takes the debt that we have accrued for sin. He takes it on himself. And he gives us his righteousness, his right standing with God. Look at 3.16. So go back a chapter. And again, um, the point is made, but then taken to, for us in our lives. Verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. He's the model we follow. It's going to be a costly love. If, if, if God's love is, is shining through us, it means that we are not making me God. We are serving other people and serving God's purposes. So C.S. Lewis makes this point in, in a way that's um, very insightful and also very convicting. He says, it's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, and otherwise unattractive. And that, that, that means like your literal brothers and sisters. They're all those things, right? <laughs> Let's go to the next part. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. Love isn't the love that he's talking about here until we're loving people in particular. And we're loving people in particular, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. Booker T. Washington was born a slave and then was freed and became a leader in, in more than one in education as well as some other uh, areas. But he says one of the worst ordeals that he had as a, as a slave, as a, as a child slave, uh, when he had to wear a brand new shirt. So the shirts in Virginia for slaves were made of flax and it was the worst flax. And so when you got a shirt, it was really stiff. 
and he said it, it actually felt like you were wearing a shirt made of little tiny thorns. So imagine day after day, spending your day working this rubbing on you, little tiny thorns. And he would often, in speeches that he would give, and his autobiography as well, he would tell a story about how his older brother John took his new shirt and put it on and wore it for him in order to break it in so that he wouldn't have to wear that new shirt anymore. That's love. It's a costly love. John is calling us to that kind of love. That means he's calling us to live that way in our homes with our brothers and sisters, our parents, our children. He's calling us to live that way in our workplaces with our workmates. He's calling us to live that way in our neighborhoods with our neighbors. The kind of love that is a God kind of love that is overflowing is going to be a kind of love that is costly. And the third and last point is an outgrowth of that one. It's one particular slice of what it means for it to be costly. It's a generous love. It's a generous love. And this is, um, uh, it's, it's, it's like a follow-up application. So look at verse third, 16 of chapter 3. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And then he illustrates it. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So when he says pity, he's not saying feeling sorry for. He's talking about a compassion that overflows in action. When he says don't love with words or speech, it's his it's that exaggeration. It's that contrast, black and white. Everything is, is either this or this that John uses throughout the whole letter. He says, let it be a kind of talking, and not just a talk, let it be actions and it's truth. That's what he's making. That's the point that he's making. He's not making it, saying that you shouldn't use words. He's trying to make a contrast to say it should show itself in actions. So there's... Um, an author, Aaron Chambers, he's a pastor, and he said um, a story about his assistant coming, uh, bringing her little daughter into a meeting that they were having. And I don't know if it was a go, you know, daughter go to work day or kid go to work day or something like that, but she sat in on this meeting while they were working on uh, how they were going to help their congregation and engage their congregation in doing a great work for God. And the reason they were doing that is because they were studying Nehemiah. And there's a passage about doing a great work for God. And so they were having a, a lengthy discussion about, so what are we going to ask our congregation to do to begin to dream and to begin to do a great work for God? Well, her little daughter got really inspired by that whole discussion. And she said to her mom afterwards, she said, I want to do a great work for God. I want to sell everything I have in a garage sale. And the mom said, what are you going to do with the money? She said, I'm going to put it in the offering. Yeah, so the mom, you know, is like feeling really proud of her daughter, except her daughter wasn't done with the sentence. She said, or buy a new car. <laughs> so uh, we, we kind of expect little kids to, to maybe kind of think that way, to kind of be very me-centered. But what God calls us to in, as we mature in him is to be able to see beyond ourselves, to not build our kingdom, but build his kingdom, to not just spend money on ourselves and our own family, to not just spend time on ourselves and our own family, 
but to be serving his purposes and his kingdom. He, he has a higher calling for us than me and mine. So generosity, it's always going to re be reflected in two places in our lives. It's going to be reflected in our checkbook ledger or wherever, whatever, you know, online, whatever keeps where your spending is gone. And in our calendar, in the way that we've used our time. So generosity is inevitably going to be reflected in how we use our money. We're using it for ourselves, our own, or are we using it for God's kingdom and for helping people who are going through, who are, as this passage talked about, needy? Our time, is it focused on ourselves or do we, are we generous with our time? It's reflected our generosity is going to be reflected in regular spiritual rhythms that are in our life, spiritual rhythms of serving and of giving. Generosity is going to be seen in that, in our serving and in our giving. And when the Holy Spirit was forming the church, as you read the book of Acts, and as you see the outgrowth of that in the letters that follow, the epistles, as the Holy Spirit is forming the church, baked into the life of the church, baked into it by the Holy Spirit, is serving and giving. It's like it says you are a body, and you, when one part of the body is not doing what God has called it to do, the whole body suffers. That's the church, the local church. It's built into it. The Holy Spirit gives gifts specifically for the church so that together we are maturing in him. So it's going to be, it, and that always is going to include the giving of ourselves. It's going to include generosity. But it's not just in spiritual practices and rhythms that work throughout our lives. It, it begins to be a part of our life just spontaneously as we see needs, as we meet needs everywhere we go. And so um, a few years ago, Eric Metaxas in his Breakpoint commentary, the radio commentary, told a story. It was around Christmas time. And he told a story about a lady named Helen Johnson who goes to the store, convenience store, and she's going to buy some eggs because she, um, her niece, two of her grandchildren, her daughter, they haven't eaten it in two days. And when she gets there and she looks, she realizes she's short 50 cents. And so she makes a calculation and she opens it and she puts five of the eggs in her pockets and tries to leave. Unfortunately, or as the story goes, fortunately for her, they broke and she was caught. And so the store people, um, you know, catch her, confront her. She admits what she was doing. They're waiting for the police to come. And the police officer, an officer, William Stacy, comes and totally surprises her. Instead of escorting her out to the car and arresting her, after hearing her story, he goes and talks to the store owners and he goes and he buys her a dozen eggs and he gives it to her. And someone outside the store, seeing a police officer talking to this lady, had their phone, turned their phone on and caught this as he finishes talking to her and as they hug each other and he gets into his car. And somehow they found out what the story was and it became a viral sensation on YouTube. 
about four or five years ago, which led to one thing after another. The police decided to um, sign her up for like a toy drive for that Christmas. Also donations came in of food, and so they filled up a truck with food, went to her house, and totally stocked her pantry and more uh, with the food. And she just, her response was, my heart is just open right now. That's, that's what she said. My heart is just open right now. So um, Metaxas goes on in his commentary to say that every, every year, you know, at that time, at Christmas time, we just wonder, we look at what God has done in coming into our squalor where we deserve judgment he brings grace and mercy. And then he comes and he dies for us. We could have been condemned before God, but Jesus didn't come in order to bring, he didn't come in to condemn, meaning he didn't come in kind of like with a sword to make things right. He came to make things right by taking the sword on himself. And Metaxas writes, most of us will never know what it's like to be 50 cents short providing a meal for hungry children, but our Lord does. He came to serve the poor and the wretched among us. God's ongoing blessing to us, if we choose to receive it, is to share his works of mercy in our world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus said, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are the rest of us who've been given opportunities to serve them. Let's pray together.